welcome to Centre Stage, the podcast which discusses current trends in philanthropy, culture, the arts and community projects around the world. Our next guest is one of the most famous and most exciting mezzo-sopranos, Jamie Barton. Jamie has performed in some of the most famous concert halls throughout the world, including the Royal Albert Hall, San Francisco Opera and the Bavarian State Opera in Munich. She has been nominated for two Grammy Awards and is set to star in Rusalka as part of this year's Wojtek Prague Music Festival. Aside from her music career, she is also a proud supporter and ambassador for the LGBTQ community and the owner of Beautiful Cat River. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. <laughs> <laughs> so Jamie, out of all the achievements that I've just listed there, which are notable, uh, which of them would you say you're most proud of? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Quite honestly, the, the, the one that comes to mind is the last night of the proms mm-hmm. uh, back in 2019. Uh, Getting to, first of all, be the, the guest of the last night was just such an honor to begin with. It's, it's uh, something I never honestly even considered that they might think of me for. Um, but especially to be able to raise the pride flag, um, especially on that particular year, because it was the 50th year of Stonewall riots in the United States. And that was such a landmark uh, change in the rights for uh, equality for queer people. And so to be able to do that and do that on the BBC, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, on television live uh, was, was one of the most thrilling and also meaningful uh, uh, points of my life, actually, not even just career, I mean, life as well. And singing Rule Britannia as well. As well. <laughs> I mean, how much better can it get? I mean, it's, that's you know, brilliant. I'm just glad I remembered all of the words <laughs> <laughs> in the order they were supposed to go. <laughs> now, brilliant. And, and from what I understand, then that whole evening, your outfit was also was also planned in the pride colours. Uh, it was, yeah, you had the flag. I mean, how how much planning went into that evening? I mean, was it was it something that you set out when you started your career? That was something that you wanted to do, or, or was it more of a couple of months, weeks before? Well, it was, gosh, it was probably a little less than a year before when they asked me if I would be the guest. So once they said, hey, we'd like for you to do this, uh, it, that's when the, the planning really began. Because like I said, I, I had never imagined that they would ask me to do this. <laughs> you know, because the people I saw in this were Renee Fleming and Sarah Walker and, you know, these, these people who, for me are idols. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, these are the people who have inspired my career. So I, 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 I was very surprised. <laughs> but once they asked, I, I knew that this was uh, something that I wanted to bring to it. Uh, every guest of the last night of the proms brings something personal to it. Uh, whether it be something about their own country when they're singing Rule Britannia or whatever, there's some aspect that they bring that's a very personal thing. And uh, knowing that it was the 50th year of Stonewall, I just, my queer community, even before I understood that I was queer, Mm -hmm. has been such uh, a family and a support for me in my life. And the idea that I could stand up and show up for that uh, in, in such a big way was, was, as soon as I thought of it, I thought, okay, I've got to call the BBC and see if they're okay with this. And they were so supportive. 
um, from moment one. And so, yeah, the, the dress was, uh, <laughs> it was actually constructed, uh, designed for me for this. Uh, it had the bisexual flag uh, kind of dyed into a cape element. And uh, that certainly took many months to, <laughs> to come to fruition. Uh, but I started, you know, planning what I wanted to do, planning what I wanted to sing, what I wanted to suggest. And uh, luckily for me, they, they took me up on several of my ideas. <laughs> and uh, in the end, I, I, I really saw the impact that it made. Mm -hmm. I, I heard back from a lot of people in the UK who said, I've always watched The Last Night of the Proms, and I've never felt more like a part of it than this year because this was celebrated you know queer identity was something that was a part of that that was celebrated and so that for me means the world honestly uh, i I'm, I'm glad i get to sing all over the world i it's it is a life i never thought that i would live when i was younger honestly but uh the idea of being able to leave a positive impact on people's lives even if they just feel seen is more important to me than just showing up and doing a pretty concert if i have the opportunity to do that mm -hmm. then i want to do that mm -hmm. it's so refreshing to hear that the response was was positive you know it's it's, it's great because because uh, classical music some of the classical music world sometimes does have a bit of a reputation for being a little bit not backward, but you know, historically minded or traditional is probably yeah. a better way to put it. Yeah. And so to see it open up like that must have been really great. Would you say that since that performance, there's been a real change in the way that not just your career has gone, but also in terms of the way that the classical opera world, classical music, sorry, and opera world has treated the LGBTQ community? Well, I mean, the real impact that I would be curious about is actually here in Europe, uh, because Quite honestly, in the United States, the arts have always been a safe haven for people in the queer community. Even before it was okay to talk about being queer, even before you know, that was something that people could do without fear, um, the United States arts <laughs> system was always you know, very supportive of, of the queer members. So I, I come from a little bit of a skewed vision of it. you know. Um, so I'm curious about it over here. Unfortunately, that was in September of 2019, and of course we know what happened in the, the last several years. <laughs> you know, March of 2020 came around for us in the United States, and that's when uh, the United States really shut down. And so I think the arts community has been going through a massive revolution, uh, as far as I can see in the United States. It's not just queer equality. It's... it's uh, representation and diversity and inclusion, not just on the side of what artists are hired, but also on the side of the administration. Mm -hmm. uh, having more people of color, more women, more queer people in positions of power, uh, because ultimately that does trickle down to influence the audience that will come in. You know, if, if the audience feels welcome in the space and like they are going to see their story told on stage at any point, then it's a different kind of situation. And I think we are seeing that in the United States. I'm really curious about how it goes over here though and how it's been going. Um, I've spent a little bit of time in Europe in the last little bit, uh, not a lot because it's, you know, been a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that being said, I, I certainly hope that there have, has been positive change. That is 
that's the entire point, is positive change. And the impression you've got so far from Prague, uh, even just kind of wandering around the streets and stuff, yeah. has, it been, has it been positive? Or, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Oh, great. oh my gosh, people here are so nice. <laughs> I come from the South in the United States, and I thought we were really nice. <laughs> people here are so nice. I've been floored everywhere I've gone. Like, uh, it's just everything from somebody at the checkout, you know, to the people who are here and the musicians. Uh, people are so outwardly warm and uh, welcoming. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because I've only been here for a week and that just <laughs> happens to be all the nice people that I've run into. But I, I, I somehow doubt that. I, I think that is the culture here just seems warm mm -hmm. and and it's really lovely I, I i hope to get a lot more time here this is now my new favorite city in europe for oh, sure <laughs> fantastic fantastic well we, uh, we we'd be more than happy to welcome you back anytime <laughs> anytime well thank you speaking of uh, of your your activism and and performing in different countries as well um is there, if, if for example, because you actually come to the Czech Republic at an interesting time because mm. they're debating uh, same-sex marriage there you at go. the minute in, in, the, in Parliament. And with, as, as in many countries with this sort of debate, you have the, the pro side and, the, and then the, the, the anti side. Would, would you ever consider not performing in a country if they would um, knowingly pass anti LGBTQ laws or would knowingly discriminate against the LGBT community? Yeah, that would be really hard. That would be really hard. I've, I've certainly performed in countries where it is not uh, a law yet. I have also performed in countries where it's dangerous to be openly queer. Um, that's really hard to say, honestly, because on one hand, of course, I want to support the communities that support my community. Um, and theirs, <laughs> you know, it's, I'm not the only queer person for sure. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, I have a big belief in trying to show queer people are just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. The only difference to me is, I, I had somebody describe it one time as outdoor plumbing versus indoor plumbing. <laughs> you know, a man is outdoor plumbing, a woman is indoor plumbing. <laughs> Who cares what kind of plumbing the house has? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and at the end of the day, if me being there and being openly queer is something that adds positively to the conversation, then yeah, I want to show up. I don't think it would always be easy. Mm -hmm. It would be really hard, I think, to, to come back and, you know, if it doesn't pass, to know that it didn't pass, to mm -hmm. know that that was something that uh, queer people in this country still really struggle with. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not gonna stop me from being queer and it's not gonna stop me from being open about that. Yeah. And I think, that's one of the reasons that I've been so open about it is because I want for this to be a part of the conversation that comes with me as an artist. It's part of the social activism, I suppose, but just showing up and being myself, as long as I feel safe, <laughs> I still want to do that because I, I really believe in the, the quote, you can't be what you can't see, you know? And for me, I, I, it was, 33 years before I understood that I was bisexual, you know, and, and that had a lot to do with not knowing a lot of bisexual people and not understanding that it was valid 
and that it was a thing. <laughs> Even in the queer community, that was a, you know, somewhat people considered a myth or something, bisexuality, and I, I, it's just not. But I, I, I think I would still come if, if I felt safe and if I felt like it was a project where my, my presence could leave an impact. Mm -hmm. Speaking of leaving an impact, um, Rusalka is coming up in, uh, in a couple of days' time. Are you excited? It's the first time you're performing in the Czech Republic, as you said. Yeah. Um, you, uh, how has preparation gone? Oh, my gosh. Uh, first and foremost, incredible. I mean, to work with Maestro Pichkov is... <laughs> this is our first time working together, and he has just been an amazing colleague, so supportive. And then to, to, to hear this music that is so intrinsically Czech played by this orchestra and sung by this choir. And it's just, it's, it's just incredible. It's really incredible. There are few times where I've gotten to really go experience that kind of thing. Wagner in Germany, you know, like that, that sort of thing. Um, and so whenever this kind of opportunity comes along, uh, along I'm, I'm really, really excited for it. I'm also really nervous. <laughs> but, but I think it's good nerves. I think it's the, the right kind of nerves, uh, the nerves that help me make sure that I'm telling the story in a way that's uh, relatable. Uh, you know, people aren't going to be distracted by an American accent or something like that. You know, I'm really trying to be a part of this great work that is being presented here. You're also performing with Asmik Gregorian yeah. as well as well as and and, and so um, and it's the first time you're seeing in Czech. Czech has gone. It's it's come okay to you, or, or is it is it still a bit of a struggle? Oh well, it was definitely a mouthful when I was learning it. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 consonant combinations that that you guys have is just very very different from from what we have in the United States. That being said. I love that challenge. That's a challenge that I've always loved, whether it be a, a standard language such as, you know, Italian or French or whatever, or one that's a little outside of the box like Czech. I, I getting to wrap my brain around how to storytell in a language that is not my own is a puzzle that I've always been interested in. Um, and what I've found, quite honestly, with Czech is that it's really beautiful to sing in. It reminds me a lot of English in that it's very consonant-driven at times, but you really have this cushion of the vowels. Mm -hmm. um, Italian to me and French also feels very, very vowel-heavy. Mm -hmm. So for me as an English speaker, I have to concentrate on not over-pronouncing mm -hmm. uh, the, the consonants that do come along, uh, even double consonants in, <laughs> in Italian music. But with Czech, it's, it's a lot closer in relationship to how I already speak and how I already sing uh, in terms of the balance between the consonants and the vowels. So there's, there's something comfortable about it and something... Uh, something that is familiar. So I'm, I'm, I'm loving getting to return to this. It's been several years, actually. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you, you have played in Rusalka before. You've played this role before, the Yeshi Baba. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I guess in, in what ways, aside from the language, obviously, um, is, is, this role, is this role different? Oh, well, she's one of the best witch roles that exists. <laughs> <laughs> she's so much fun. I mean, she's, she's a, a very hard-hitting role in that she comes in for one scene in the first act 
and I say like one and a half scenes in the third act, but you remember her. <laughs> she's, she's, she's got a large impact, of course. Um, and I love these very interesting roles. I'm, I'm glad that as a mezzo-soprano, I get to sing the, the witches, the, the complicated characters, the villains, the, you know, all of that. So this one's especially juicy. I can, I can be a, a little bit, I can play with her a little bit. Uh, I can change it. She turns on a dime to, to, to being evil or being very nurturing. And there's something, there's a lot of fun in that. <laughs> Your journey into the world of opera and classical music wasn't, quote, conventional, <laughs> if, that's, if that's an appropriate way of, of putting it. Yeah. It, was, uh, it, was, it was from 2007, which was, your, which was a big, big breakthrough, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. And so how, how, have you, how have you found it so far? How, how was it in the beginning for you? Um, did the, because, I mean, it must have been, there must have been times when, when it was a little bit tough or, or as, a, as, a young, as a young mezzo-soprano. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, as you say, I came from a place that... Uh, classical music didn't really go to. Uh, we didn't have a symphony in my hometown. Uh, we, I, I didn't even really have a grocery store in my hometown. <laughs> we had to drive an extra 20 minutes to, to just groceries. Um, so coming from uh, growing up on a farm in the middle of the mountains, it just wasn't uh, what my parents listened to or what anybody around us that I know of listen to. Um, and when I was a teenager, I fell in love with classical music and I was already singing in choir and doing community theater. And I figured out very quickly that I wanted to perform, uh, but that I didn't really, I, I, I didn't have any dance experience, <laughs> no ballet classes, no tap or anything. So I decided I shouldn't do musical theater because that required dance classes, <laughs> but I should do voice performance as my degree because it it didn't require dance classes it was just singing and acting um and i had no idea at the time what i was getting into quite honestly i, I was just in love with the idea of being able to perform in a way that felt very natural to me um and i'm really really glad that i had a slow ascent into the career i started out at a college in my hometown that happened to have a really, really good music department when I was there. And then I went to Indiana University, which is huge. <laughs> Absolutely massive. Uh, I think there were 500 vocal students when I was there. Wow. It was absolutely huge, which was perfect, honestly, for me, going from, a, I would say, a small pond into the ocean, you know, to, to having to fight my way into getting cast and finding opportunities to perform. Um, I, I think, as far as I can tell from my colleagues, there isn't a typical way of getting into this. I know some people, a very small number of people actually, who grew up in a classical music family, mm -hmm. whose parents were in orchestras or also performed. Uh, it, it seems to be a relatively small group of people. Actually, I think most of my colleagues are like me, coming from random beginnings and finding our way to this. But I, I remember re re reading an interview um, of yours where you said that classical music was your way of rebelling when you were a teenager, which <laughs> yeah. I found very interesting. Yeah. Because normally 
rock and roll, dance music, <laughs> techno is, is that, but, but few is classical music. Um, yeah. Was there a particular moment in your life that, that really set that tone or, or was it a gradual, you just were introduced into this world and then that was it? I think it was a combination of the both. Uh, I was, you know, there were little elements of me being introduced to classical music, whether it be through cartoons in the United States that used classical music, uh, or quite honestly, listening to Mariah Carey and wondering how she hit those high notes, you know. Um, turns out she had a mother who was an opera singer who taught her voice lessons. So this is opera, you know, that influenced culture. Um, but yeah, you're right. My parents, uh, they were hippies. <laughs> they're, they're still hippies. <laughs> you know, I grew up listening to classic rock and uh, bluegrass music and stuff like that. And that is still a lot of the music that I listen to. Um, but when I was a teenager, I found myself uh, going into maybe the funniest teenage rebellion one can think of. <laughs> I, I think teenagers want to do something opposite of what their parents do or what their community is used to. And for me, about the, as, as opposite as you could get was classical music, you know, classical art, literature, music, paintings, all of it. I started collecting art and recordings uh, and I remember the moment that I really fell. I really, I really do. Um, I was listening to the radio late at night, actually, and uh, Chopin's uh, Ballade Number no. 2 came on, the one in F major. And um, I knew that I loved Chopin by that point anyway, but I had never heard that ballade. And the first bit is very calm, and then the, the second bit is just manic. It's, it's just insane and I remember I had earphones on and I had turned the volume up because I didn't know what was coming <laughs> and when the B section came it stunned me and I realized that there was all of this music that I didn't know that was an opportunity for me to imagine what the story behind it was and that's what I fell in love with the storytelling through this music that uh, with with orchestral and piano music and stuff like that, you really can imagine your own scenes of what is happening. And then even with art song and opera, there are so many interpretations of how the story can be told. And at the end of the day, it's always a, a really human story for the most part, even if you're playing Yeji Baba, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it still comes, humans wrote this, you know, composers are, are humans. <laughs> and so it's, it's just a fascinating thing to me still, this, this storytelling that was so different from the music I, I grew up with. But yeah, it was, the music I grew up with absolutely gave me the love of music though, um, whether it be Jimi Hendrix or the Beatles or whatever, <laughs> you know, I, the, the, the love of storytelling through music was, was really foundational to me as a kid because of my parents. And so thank you, Beatles. <laughs> thank you all of that music, uh, for, for this love, because it's led me to this point right here exactly right now sitting across from you i wouldn't have this if if i didn't have the life i had leading up to it so <laughs> <laughs> you've often been 
called a rock star of the classical music world. Uh, how, does, how does that make you feel, that, that term? Is it... <laughs> it makes me feel way cooler than I actually am. <laughs> ah, you're pretty cool, to be fair. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> no, I, you know, in the beginning especially, I, I didn't feel like I belonged because I came from somewhere completely different. Um, I, I, I felt very much like a fish out of water. Mm. And it took me years to understand that I could show up exactly as who I am. And that not only could I, but I should. <laughs> I should for the people in the audience who don't feel like they can show up exactly who they are and walk through the door and enjoy a concert. Um, I, I think it's really important to to show that everybody has a place, uh, whether you're in the audience or on the stage. Um, and so it, it took a while. It took, gosh, it was probably 2015 when I actually started looking like a rock star, <laughs> you know, side shave and the purple hair and the nose rings and stuff like that. But all of this is just, it, it's not trying to put on a character to, to look more interesting. It's, it's honestly honoring who I am, my own self-expression, even outside of this classical music world. Um, and to me, it, it adds value to the art that I put on stage. So, yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm flattered when people refer to me as anywhere close to a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> well, we work with uh, the Carol Kermack Family Foundation. Um, we work with a lot of young people, young artists, young musicians. Um, what advice would you, would you give to them, mm. perhaps listening to this, that might feel like they have to conform or like they have to adopt a certain style um, yeah. of, of being, of, of doing what they, what they love uh, to break into, into what they want to do? I think, first of all, I would say I would understand the thought behind wanting to conform to something in order to be able to have access to it. Because there are still a lot of people who are very conservatively minded, uh, a lot of uh, people in positions of hiring people and casting and power that uh, will look at people like me and automatically not want to, to cast them. Uh, but that being said, my piece of advice would be to honor exactly who they are and to honor the artistry that they, their unique artistry. Um, that is so important. I, I, I hear influences of other singers sometimes and younger singers. You can tell that this person's been listening to this person or that person or this recording or that recording. Um, and while it is educational, and you absolutely should <laughs> go listen to your favorite recordings, <laughs> at the end of the day, the audience can really tell when an artist is honest in the storytelling and in who they are, how they present it. When you see somebody like Asmik doing Rosalka, it is utterly her. It is not informed by recordings. It's not informed by anyone other than her own interpretation of this role. It's, it's astounding. And that honesty is what draws people in. And if you focus on and, and really invest in discovering your own unique artistry within this art form, then you can really say things that are important. You can tell stories that 
stay with people. And that, at the end of the day, is way more important than making sure that you're doing stuff stylistically correct, although you should, <laughs> you know, or, or, or doing these things that we get bogged down in the details of. Um, but always, always, always come back to who you are as a human and who you are as an artist and love, respect, and invest in that artistry. That, that will always pay you back in dividends, so. <laughs> That's great advice, that really is, that really is. <laughs> um, looking forward now, um, what are your plans for the future, Jamie Barton? Have you ever considered perhaps looking for, or working with a, a rock band or a <laughs> pop band, experimenting a little bit with musical genres? Absolutely, absolutely, honestly, but especially during the pandemic, um, since we had all of this time off, and quite honestly, since I was pretty depressed. <laughs> and, we all were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, since, since there was all this time, I, I really started to think about what is my voice outside of classical music? What is my natural instrument, my, my natural way of expressing? And it helped me start looking into different genres and different ways of storytelling. Um, and I discovered that I'm very, very interested in that. The honest answer is that I don't know what will come up. <laughs> but right now, if Metallica were to call me and ask me to sing with them, I would. <laughs> you know, if, if, if I had the opportunity to... Uh, I'm, I'm already thinking about trying to do concerts that are a little bit more like going to see your favorite band mm -hmm. than they are a classical recital. Not to say that the classical stuff won't be there. It will. But I'm really interested in singing uh, a lot more variety. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm very interested in supporting works by women, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be poets, librettists, composers. Um, and it's, it's definitely something that is leading my mind right now in terms of what's coming up in the future. But Hopefully, fingers crossed, we will see. It's, I, I think that uh, especially since we all went through a pandemic, the world is really interested in things that are different. Yeah. You know, Not only in having the experience of going to a live concert, since we didn't get to do that very much for a while, but also in uh, going to see things that tickle their brain, you know? Mm. Things that make them think out of the box in terms of what is normal for a classical singer to be doing on stage. So we'll see, who knows? <laughs> I'm actually really glad you mentioned promoting um, the work of female composers yeah. and women, uh, because I remember in a, in a different interview that you, that you did in the past, you mentioned that you, you, you'd had enough of, of um, plays, operas that were written by the patriarchy. Yeah. That, that was that you're done with that, which is, which is so refreshing to hear. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 <laughs> I am done with it in many ways. Mm. There are also, plenty of operas that were written during the patriarchal times and uh, by people who subscribed entirely to the patriarchy, which still tell stories that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. But in terms of new works, I, I'm really, I'm much more interested in the voices that haven't been heard, mm -hmm. is what it comes down to. Would you say there's been an, an increase in the amount of female composers and, and women getting involved. I mean, you mentioned earlier on in the interview that, that, that you've, seen a, you've seen an increase in the United States. Would you say that abroad as well, that you've seen a, a change, especially in the last three years? 
I, I would, uh, yes, I've seen a change. I would, I would also say that it's not a change in how many female composers there are. It's a change in how many people are paying attention to the female composers that were already there, mm-hmm. um, the female creators and storytellers. Uh, it's in the United States, and I, 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 of course, know the United States more because I perform there more, sure, and that's sure. where my roots are. But we are definitely seeing a, a big shift in uh, the desirability around composers of color, uh, queer composers and women composers, you know, basically any equity-seeking groups. And that's a wonderful thing. And sometimes it is uh, very much in the service of a, an organization looking good. Mm-hmm. But I'm also finding that a lot of the people in charge are genuinely interested in this. They genuinely want to program things that are outside of their normal box. And um, I love the music that I fell in love with. I love my Chopin, my Mahler, my Tchaikovsky. You know, I, I love these works that were done largely by white men. Um, and I don't think we should get rid of them. But I absolutely think that we have to open the doors wider um, mm. to show more perspectives and tell more stories. And I am very excited about hopefully getting to know many more composers and getting to do new works, uh, things that t- stories that don't uh, <laughs> basically involve me doing my typical mezzo thing, which is, you know, in a bel canto i'm probably standing in the corner looking very sad and worried for most of the night because the dude was the one who initiated the love triangle and the soprano is gonna die <laughs> and i'm probably gonna survive but i'm not gonna be happy about it you know i'm, I'm kind of i'm done with that story i'm really bored with that one I, I i want to see more stories that honor the different heroes we have and they're not all men you know so that that's what i'm here for <laughs> I'm very glad you mentioned the promotion and the widening of the, the, the doors of, of classical music world. Um, our foundation supports a lot of young people, a lot of young artists get into the classical music world, get scholarships to prestigious schools and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, obviously, I've <laughs> reduced it there to just one thing. But um, what, would you, what advice would you give to, to charities and to foundations like ours for improving the classical music world and for widening the doors to as many people as possible, to making it more inclusive? It's very easy. It's very easy. You just ask the people who you're trying to help. You ask the marginalized communities. You ask your own community here, what do you need? What, what, how can we help in this kind of way? Um, I do think that having uh, advisors uh, from all sorts of different communities is really always going to benefit uh, how progressive uh, an organization is. So. Just asking the people. <laughs> the people, it, it really impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the end of the day, asking a white woman is probably, you know, eh, you're going to get some good ideas, but I come from my own filter, my own perspective. Uh, asking the filters and the perspectives that aren't normally sitting on the other side of the chair. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the easiest way, <laughs> I think. Um, and, and, yeah, you just you end up with much better ideas, ideas that are informed by lived experience. So, very simple answer there. <laughs> Jamie Barton, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on our Center Stage podcast. All the best with not just Rusalka, but going forward as well, and hopefully we'll get the chance to meet again. Well, thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this episode of Center Stage with special guest, mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton. You can stay up to date with all of our Center Stage podcast episodes on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.